to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And this evening in our study, the fifth chapter, I'd like to preach part two of the sermon that I began last week, entitled, A Warning of Wrath. And we have been considering in this chapter Paul's words from verse number one, where he tells us to be followers or to be imitators of Christ. And then as he goes through the passage here, these next verses, he sets up a contrast between what it's like to follow the Lord and also uh, to live in the old sinful life. And his argument hinges on the word saints that we find in verse number three. And he's teaching us that it's not in character for a blood-washed, spiritually cleansed, heaven-bound saint to live in such a way as dishonors Christ. So that's the theme of his message. When we're saved, we become citizens of a heavenly country, and we're to conduct ourselves like we are children of God and like we are true possessors of the inheritance that God has given. And the point of this teaching is to help us to understand that a person who does not live in true righteousness and holiness has really no claim to call himself a Christian. And those who are not Christians, who are not born again, they will suffer the wrath of God. So that's our subject. Let's stand, if you would, please. And we're going to read these verses once again. Let's look at Ephesians 5. We're going to start reading at verse number 3 tonight. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named amongst you as become a saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Wednesday night services and the opportunity to be here once again. Bless our study in your word tonight. Open our eyes to the words of your truth, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In part number one of the sermon last week, I spoke about the perversion of saints. It's wholly out of character for those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been redeemed to practice these types of sins that Paul mentions in these verses. But that was the character of these Ephesian people before they were saved. Before they were saved, they lived in the decadence of the city of Ephesus. It wasn't uncommon for them to practice the very things that Paul mentions here. There was all kinds of immoral activity. It was their way of life to be impure and to be covetous and to be insolent. That was just normal activity for a person who was a, city, a, a citizen of Ephesus. And while they lived that way, they really didn't know any better. I mean, that, that's the way of the world, a person without Christ, really doesn't know how he's supposed to live, and he doesn't know how to live according to the precepts of God. So it was just normal activity in the city of Ephesus. But then when the gospel came, and Paul preached to them and gave them the word of truth, their eyes were open to that truth. They became followers. They became believers in Jesus Christ. And now Paul is telling them that since they have received Christ, that they're no longer to go back into the old way, like the neighbors and all those folks around them in Ephesus were living. So we could simply say that Paul's message here is that for a Christian to live any other way than in the righteousness, the way of righteousness and holiness, that's simply unbecoming for a person who is a saint of God. 
Now, the chief reason that we are to live according to the Word of God is that if we live any other way, that dishonors the Savior. It's an affront to God. It's harmful to our Christian testimony. But worst of all, I guess we would, we would say that it grieves God. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God for His children not to have His character lived out through their lives. So now we come to the second part of Paul's argument, and I want to speak tonight about the exclusion of sinners. Now, verse number 5 says, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, here is a very plain fact that's stated. It's an argument beyond dispute that anybody who practices these types of sin cannot claim to be a Christian. Folks, if there's one thing that's needed in our churches today, it's that our pastors and preachers would go back to preaching against sin. Preach about righteous and holy living. That's so sorely needed. We find so many of our churches today that they're really interested mostly in the church growth concept. And their idea is that they put the numbers up on a pedestal. And so whatever they can do to get people to come to church, no matter what it takes, that's what they're willing to do. And they think that if people are coming to church, then they must be doing something right. And so there are many churches who confuse uh, God's work for just activity that goes on. And uh, the churches today feel like they just have to be all things to all people. And if that means that we have to relax our standards, if it means that we have to be just like the godless neighborhoods that are around our church, then that's exactly what we'll do because we need to fill up the church. And so today, all across America, there are thousands of churches that have joined in with the purpose-driven church movement, with the purpose-driven life. And really, all that is, when you study it out, is just an accommodation to a worldly lifestyle that leaves no difference between the people of God and the people of the world. And so the chief end of all that is really not to magnify the holiness and the righteousness of God. It's not that they might be a people that are called out by, uh, by His name. It's not that they're going to live up to a standard of righteousness and holiness that God demands. But rather, that kind of preaching leaves people in a place where they want to be man-centered and man-exalting. They want to have a, some kind of a philosophical movement that really does not get at the real sin problem that's inherent in every single person who's been born into this world. People have a sin problem, and people need to be changed. And the Bible tells us that if a person is not changed, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to be born again, and we must be partakers of the divine nature through the Spirit of Christ. Now, here's the thing that the apostle is trying to set forth in this verse. Now, first of all, for sinners, there is no admission to the fellowship of Christ. No admission to the fellowship of Christ. And that's a warning that comes down to us from many scriptures that we find in both the Old and the New Testaments. If we look in the Old Testament, we find there that the theocratic kingdom of God, that God said that his people must be separate. He said there must be holy living. And that was demonstrated in just about everything that the Israelites did. Their personal relationships had to be different. Their diet had to be different. Clothing had to be different. When Israel came into possession of the promised land, remember that God said, drive all of those people out. I don't want my people mixing with the inhabitants of Canaan. 
God gave his people a special diet. And he said, I don't want you to eat the same foods that they eat. God uh, gave them the worship of the tabernacle. And if you remember, when God called the priest for the worship of the tabernacle, he even gave them a very special clothing. And in every garment that the high priest put on, there was something there that talked about the perfections of Christ. Something that spoke about his holiness. So God was very specific about who and who could not be accepted for fellowship. Well, when we come to the New Testament, the standards are not relaxed. We tend to think that because the Old Testament laws have been done away with, that the ceremonial laws are no longer, that somehow God must have changed his mind. And God's no longer concerned about righteousness and holiness. He really doesn't care about that anymore. And so people say that the uh, commandments that were contained in the law of God, that's useless for us today. We don't have to follow those things anymore because God's not concerned with it. We can live without it. But there's really no change in God's mind about holiness and obedience. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, the standards actually become greater. And the evidence that it's greater is the passages just like we've been reading right here and studying. When Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, he was very forceful about how they should live. And he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Now I want you to notice how Paul ends verse number 5, the text there, because he tells us, If you practice these sins... He says, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And what I think that he's trying to show us there is that the God of the Old Testament is one and the same as Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament who demanded that his people be a holy people is also the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who demands the very same thing. The standards are not relaxed. God still expects us to be a holy people. And so both Old and New Testament, God in the Old and God in the New, they're equal, they're the same, and the demands are exactly alike. You remember when the thief on the cross was speaking to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the kingdom that he was talking about was the kingdom of Christ. And folks, that is one and the same with the kingdom that we find in the Old Testament. That's the kingdom of God. And there's no difference at all. Now, there are many commentators who like to make a point that in verse number five, that there's no preposition of in the original language, so that the verse would actually read the kingdom of Christ and God, emphasizing the point that Christ and God are exactly one and the same. So what we find then is that there is not a church that ever does anybody any favors by trying to widen the gates of heaven wider than the owner of it has intended for it to be. And so churches that want to be so inclusive uh, that they don't care what you do, they don't care what kind of lifestyle that you live, it doesn't matter to them, it doesn't matter if you're a fornicator, if you're a homosexual, if you're a pedophile, our umbrella is wide enough to receive everybody and everybody is welcome to come. But that's not what Paul says. He says no whoremonger. No unclean person, no covetous person, no idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so there are churches who may open up their doors and they may receive people who commit those types of sin. But what we would have to say is they're not Christian because that has nothing at all to do with Christ. Christ is one who demands something more. He demands 
righteousness and holiness from his people. Now, Christ says, I'm not going to have fellowship with those kinds of things. And so there's no admission to the fellowship of Christ unless there's been a new birth. And in those, that new birth, the Bible tells us that the old things have been passed away. Things have become new. And so there has to be that change. Now, certainly we do know this, that Jesus said to every person who is a sinner, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived, no matter where you've been, Jesus says to everybody, come as you are. And he will accept you, come as you are. But we also notice this, that the Bible teaches that when you come to him, you'll be different when you leave him. When you leave him to go out and do what he's told you to do, you will be an entirely different person. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because here we find a parallel passage for this one in Ephesians, and Paul is dealing with the same kinds of things with the Corinthian church that he's dealing with the Ephesian church. And the message that Paul gives them doesn't change because the locality changes. It's the same sin and it's the same truth. No matter where a person is anywhere in the world, it's still the same God that we serve. And here's what he says to the Corinthians. Look at verse number 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a parallel passage. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now look very closely at verse number 11 and pay attention. And he says, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, he says. But now he says, you're no longer that way. You're different from that. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've been sanctified by the Word of God. You've been justified from the guilt of your sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. So such were some of you. Now, do you see what he's saying here? He says that when you come to Christ, you're born again and you come out of all those old wicked vices. And if you haven't been changed, if you haven't received the new birth that God gives and have been changed, then you don't have any part in the kingdom of God. Without the new birth, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And so there is no fellowship with Christ without a change taking place. So what we can tell all these folks out here and and the churches that seem to have so much problem with these issues, we can talk about Episcopalians and the Methodist Church, and it's all a matter of record. You see it in your newspaper every day. The Presbyterian Church USA, the United Church of Christ, all of them. You can say, open up your doors to gays and lesbians and, and ordain as many of those people as you want to do, but don't call yourself Christians. And don't pretend that your preachers and your teachers are the Christ of the Bible because the Word of God says God, Christ, has no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, some people will hear us preach those kinds of things and they'll say, well, you know, you're preaching a religion of hate. God is not that kind of God. God doesn't hate anybody. God is a God of love and God accepts everybody. He accepts all people no matter what they do. Well, the question I would ask is, where did you get that information about God? Where is the God that you're talking about? Because the God that I know anything about, that I've been studying 45 years in the Bible trying to find out something about, is not that same God. The Bible says, in Revelation 21, verse 8, God says, but the fearful and unbelieving 
and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I want you to look at the first phrase of that verse there because that excludes all people who make up a God who doesn't punish sin and who say that if you live in the vices of all these different kinds of things, that you're all right, you don't need to worry about it. Because what does it say? It says the fearful and unbelieving. You know who an unbeliever is? An unbeliever is a person who looks at that scripture that I've just read and he says, I don't believe that. I don't believe that God's family doesn't include everybody, no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what kind of sin that you live in. I can't believe that God's family doesn't include all of those. Well, what else is an unbeliever but one who doesn't believe what the Bible says? And if you don't believe what the Bible says, then you can't call yourself a Christian. So you can go ahead, you can do exactly what you want, but don't tack the name Christian on top of it because that's not what a Christian does. God says you have no inheritance of the kingdom of God, of Christ, and of God. Now, let's go on a little bit further here because there's another characteristic of those who are excluded from God's kingdom. There's no admission to the fellowship of Christ. Also, there is no submission to the lordship of Christ. Well, now we're going to bring this thing a little bit closer home because there are many among our own fellowship, even those who have Baptist over their doors, who deny that we must submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, if you've been listening very closely to what I'm saying here, that as I talk about the Old Testament law and I speak about the higher standard of New Testament laws, that I am telling you that obedience to Christ's commands is essential to the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Now, some people get all upset about that. They don't want you to preach that. And so they say, well, what you're doing then, you're preaching a salvation that comes by the law and by keeping commandments. The Bible says that we're justified by faith and all the New Testament ever demands of anyone is that a person put their faith in Jesus Christ and therefore he will be saved. And of course, the argument says that righteousness doesn't come by the law. Therefore, the law has been done away with, and we don't have to worry anymore about meeting the demands of the law. Well, you know, that's a real nice idea, except there wasn't even a person in the Old Testament who was ever saved by the law either. Not one person in all the Old Testament was ever saved by keeping any of the commandments. And Paul was very clear about that when he talked about Abraham. And he argued that Abraham was justified by faith years before Moses was ever given the law. So why was it that anybody in the Old Testament had to live by the law? And why did God demand that the Israelites live in his law? I mean, why didn't he just throw out the law? Why did he say, don't worry about the law? Justification by faith, that's all that, that, that there is. So just leave it at that. Well, do you know what Jesus said about the law? Well, turn, if if you would, to Matthew chapter 5 very quickly there. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, 
the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, you know the the question that would immediately be asked there. How could anyone have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? How could you exceed that? People who spend so much time trying to keep even the very smallest detail of the law. How are you going to exceed that kind of righteousness? Well, you know the answer to it, I think, but I'm going to tell you again. The way that you exceed that kind of righteousness is by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness that's imputed to us through faith. Christ came to fulfill the law. He kept all the laws of God perfectly. And he earned righteousness that he could give to everyone who puts their faith in him. And so he charges that righteousness or places that righteousness to our account. And we're justified only by the fact that we've been placed in Christ and his righteousness has been imputed unto us. Now what would happen, do you think... If a person has the perfect righteousness of Christ and he has that charge to his account, what do you think would happen to that person? Don't you think that he would show it in righteous living? Don't you think that would be a part of his lifestyle? Would he obey the laws of God just like Christ obeyed the laws of God? Would he be a whoremonger? Would he be an unclean person? Would he be covetous? Would he be an idolater? Well, he wouldn't be any any of those things. And so if a person continues to practice those old vices, then what would that show us? Well, it would show us that he's never been regenerated. He's never been justified, and therefore he doesn't have the righteousness of Christ. Now, while you're in Matthew, turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21. This is a continuation of, the, of that message. And he says there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name, thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, I'd like to put that as simply as Jesus put it, You can't call him Lord. You can't call him Lord. And at the same time, refuse to do the will of the Father. And the message is, if you don't do the will of the Father, then you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. But you have people who run around today, and they're trying to preach and tell people that you don't have to repent of all your sins in order to go to heaven. And they say, the only thing that's necessary is for you to claim Christ just believe him by faith, and you really don't have to make him the Lord of your life in order to be saved. And what do many of our, our churches today do? They, they name buildings after people who preach a false gospel. They hang their portraits in the hallways. They pay homage to those men. They, they clap their hands whenever they enter into the room. And you know what all of it is? It's just subtle perversion of people who keep others blinded to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you can call that lordship salvation if you want. And as I spoke on Sunday night, you know, lordship salvation. But I do understand exactly what it means. I understand that no one is saved by the works of the law. That's impossible. But I also know that there's no one who can rightly claim that they're born again, that they are a believer in Jesus Christ, and that they've been justified by the blood of the Lamb without an evidence of a changed heart and the imputed righteousness of Christ. You can't have it. It doesn't work that way. Now, do you see why Paul warns in these scriptures? 
Let me tell you why he does this. It's for the same reason that he wrote in Hebrews 3, verse number 12. He said, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, what I think that many of our fundamental churches have done is they've given people false hope. They've gone out and they've done their little soul-winning trick. They do their song and dance and they tell people, just believe, just believe, just say the prayer. And they're trying to force people to say the prayer. Zap, you're saved, and that's all there is to it. And what they've never done is they've never told that person that they must repent of all those wicked sins that they've done and then put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they haven't done also is they haven't talked to people about the true public confession of their faith, and that's their baptism. And so people will die and they go to hell with a half presentation of the gospel. Repentance and faith are important to your salvation. And you can't get half of it wrong and still lead people to Christ. But you know their argument? They say, well, at least we're out there doing something. At least we're out there knocking on doors. Well, you might as well be passing out coupons for pies and car washes for all the good for eternity that it does because it doesn't do any good at all. Paul is speaking here about a real change that takes place. There is a contrast. You once were this and now you're that. You once were old and now you're new. And if you really are new, then you'll be a follower of God as dear children. So here's the thing. The people who pervert the true gospel of Christ, what they would like to do is to separate out justification and forgiveness of sins. And so they want to present a Christ to people who has only one thing in mind. I want to save you. I want to save you. I want to save you. I want to get you to heaven, get you to heaven, get you to heaven. And that's all that I really care about. But justification and forgiveness of sin are not all there is to this. Now, there's more that goes with it. Here's what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 30. It says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So here's what happens when you get saved. You get the whole enchilada. You get all of this. If there's no righteousness, if there's no sanctification, if there's no redemption then there's no justification and there's no forgiveness. So it's pure perversion of the gospel to preach repentance with, or preach a repentance that says you don't have to repent of all your sins or that repentance and faith are equal things. And so consequently, when you throw out repentance, with it goes the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says that repentance is unto life. You know, the scripture says that repentance is unto life. So name the buildings and hang the portraits, clap your hands, but all you do is perpetuate Satan's deceit. Now that brings me to the final observation from the scriptures. Why is there a warning here? Because of the deception of Satan. So we have the perversion of saints, exclusion of sinners, and finally we have the deception of Satan. Verse number 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Well, there's deception out there. You know it. You see it every day. And all deception has its root in the work of Satan. Satan's the great deceiver. And all of these preachers and churches that stand against the true gospel of Christ and who leave people in unbelief, they are also deceivers. Now, I believe, of course, that most of our Baptist friends are saved, but I also believe that they've been unwittingly duped by Satan and they help to perpetuate 
a false gospel in many ways. And then you have all these cults out here and, and others who never deal with this question of sin. And they never deal with man's inherent depravity. And if they don't, they're preaching vain words. It's no good. It's going to leave people in a place where they're going to go to hell. So Paul says, because of these sins, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. And so churches today that tell people that you can continue in all these sexual perversions, you can continue to live that way, they're just setting people up for the wrath of God to fall on them. Now, all you need to do is really do some reading in the Old Testament and find out what God really thinks about this. Go to the book of Genesis and see what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone fell on them because of their sin. That ought to be an eye-opener, shouldn't it? Go to Numbers chapter 25, and there you'll find that there were 24,000 Israelites who were killed because they committed fornication with Moabite women. That ought to tell you something. And we ought not to forget that we've already established by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 5, that the same God in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and his demands are equal in both places. And so nobody could ever say, well, that's Old Testament and sodomy and all those things. That was bad in the Old Testament. But it's okay now. It's okay now because Jesus changed things. Not on your life. Not on your life. The God of the Old Testament's the God of the New. So here's what these Old Testament stories tell us. What do they tell us? Well, they tell us that there is natural suffering in the present. The Bible teaches us that sin has consequences right here in this life. Now, the kinds of sins that he's talking about here are things that bring about venereal disease. AIDS is a problem. And you know, a few years ago, the Christian right was really vilified because there were leaders in the Christian right who said that AIDS was God's judgment upon homosexual, on homosexuals. Now, I think that we could expand that somewhat, and I think that we could say that AIDS is God's judgment on all who permit and legalize that kind of a lifestyle. Because it's rightly pointed out, it's not just homosexuals who get AIDS. Other people get it as well. But just thank the homosexuals for this, that they're the ones who keep it going. Uh, legalizing the lifestyle is certainly not going to help us stamp out AIDS, that's for sure. And so what's happened? Now you have the poor old guy who works out the city dump, who has nothing to do with all of that stuff, and he has to wear a hazard suit because he never knows. He might stick his hand in a pile of garbage and get infected with some kind of a needle and get AIDS. Isn't that a shame? And we perpetuate the kind of thing. So what do we do? Well, we keep pouring money in. Find a cure for AIDS. Spend the money on AIDS. And they spend more money on AIDS, I think the statistics are, even they do on cancer, even though there are thousands more people who die of cancer. But they keep spending the money on AIDS. Well, we had the cure for it. Did you know that? We had the cure for AIDS. We kept the lifestyle in check. We kept it under wraps. We kept that stuff in the closet, and we didn't let it outside. I don't hear any amens on that. Good. So there are diseases that come from this. There are emotional disorders. There are psychological disorders. And what do we have right now? We've even got kids in our elementary school today that are trying to discover their sexuality. If you get involved in all of that stuff, the consequences will be bad in this life. It brings sickness. It brings death. And certainly it does bring unfulfilled lives. But that's not the most serious thing. It's not what happens in this life that's the most serious. It's not what happens in the present. Here's what's truly to be feared. It's supernatural suffering in the future. And I think this is really Paul's main point. 
The wrath of God is punishment in the everlasting fires of hell. Now, here's the thing. You're either in one of two kingdoms. Either you're in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of the God of this world. Either you are in the kingdom of Christ or you're in Satan's kingdom. And either you are a child of God or you're a child of disobedience. So here's what people need to understand. And that is that our relationship with God is not just for this life. Our relationship with God goes on through eternity. And whatever happens to a person at death, whatever relationship that he has with God at death, that is the same relationship that he's going to experience all throughout eternity. It doesn't change after death. There is no change of state after death. Now, all of these problems that that mankind has, it all started, you know, with one single act of sin all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Satan deceived Adam, and then all of Adam's progeny fell in him. And now we're all fast on our way to a place called hell. That, that act of, of Adam in disobeying God plunged all of his progeny in, towards the place called hell. Now, Jonathan Edwards, very eloquently in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of, angry God, of an Angry God, explained to us that we don't have a safety net under us. And he said, here's the problem. He says, all of us hang over the precipice of hell... And we are as likely to stop ourselves from falling in as a spider's web can stop a rock from falling. We're going to go there if something doesn't change. So what we see in this and what Paul is trying to point out is that God is angry at sin. Now, when we think about anger and we think about man's anger, we think about uncontrolled rage. No rhyme or reason to it. Just flying off the handle, getting, getting mad and rash decision-making. But when we talk about the wrath of God, that's not the way it is. God's wrath is controlled. God's wrath is steadfast determination. God hates sin. God hates the perpetrators of sin. And he has very methodically devised a method to take care of it. I read it to you just a moment ago. It was in Revelation 21, verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's God's cure for sin for those who die without him. Now, Paul's warning here is to make sure that you have a right relationship with God. And he's telling the Ephesian Christians that we... And they need to examine ourselves. We need to make sure that our lives match the holiness and the righteousness of God that's revealed in his word. And if you wait to do something about that, if you don't do something about it now, then the wrath of God is going to fall. Now, let me close with this thought tonight. I will persevere if Christ is Lord of my life. Now, this is the warning of wrath. Don't be deceived, he says. Don't listen. Don't listen to the vain words of men who tell you that you're okay just like you are. You don't really need to change. All that you really need to have is just a little bit of faith, and then you'll have eternal security. That's a lie. It's a deception of the devil. Now, some people say, well, the Bible doesn't teach perseverance. The Bible doesn't teach that. Well, if the Bible doesn't teach it, then you can just throw out the verses that we've studied tonight. You don't need to worry about any of this. Don't worry about this warning that Paul is giving because it's not required that you persevere. 
And you know that is the same thing as saying, if you say there is no perseverance and perseverance is not required, it is equal to saying it is not necessary that Jesus be the Lord of my life. I can be saved without him being the Lord of my life. And that's a lie. I'm going to stick with Paul on this. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. He says, imitators of God. That's what we're supposed to be. And anything less than that will be eternal loss. And that's the warning of wrath. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. Lord, these are very serious things that Paul brings up here. And there is a way that you expect your people to live. And I just ask you, Lord, help us to be a people of righteousness and holiness. May we follow your law. May we do your will. And Lord, we know that we will inherit the kingdom of God when you live through us. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.